Good morning, church. Good to see everyone as the kids are making their way to their classes. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn them once again to the book of Romans. This morning, we will conclude our verse-by-verse study of this book. Three years later, about three years, almost to the week that we started our study in this book, we're going to bring it to a close this morning. I still plan, Lord willing, to, uh, to do a one Sunday overview, kind of summary of the entire book next Sunday. So just bring your lunches with you next Sunday and we'll just, we'll just go on through. But, um, but no, this morning we conclude with Paul's conclusion at the end of this letter, which is called his doxology, verses 25 through 27. The word doxa in Greek means glory, and that's what Paul is doing here. He's praising God. He's glorifying God in these closing three verses. And it's not just a way to end a formal letter. It's not just like, you know, love Paul. This glorifying of God, this praising of God that Paul concludes with is a natural byproduct of the content of this entire letter, as we'll see both this morning and next week. Bible scholars are in near unanimous consent that this letter to the Romans is the epitome, the climax of Paul's theological writings. Contained herein, in this letter, is more theological meat than we find in all of his other letters, and a natural byproduct of that theology is doxology. As a matter of fact, if your theology doesn't lead to doxology, then you're probably doing theology wrong. Theology, the study of the theos, the study of God, is not intended to be primarily an intellectual exercise where we learn more about God. It is intended to provoke worship. It is intended to lead to naturally, not not forced, but naturally to lead to doxology. And if it doesn't, then there's either something wrong with your theology or there's something wrong with you. Neither of which is the case with the Apostle Paul, of course, and so naturally he closes this mass of theology in this letter with this doxology in verses 25 through 27. So follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read these last three verses. Church, this this is the breath of God. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we consider it a privilege to be able to gather here this morning and worship you as we have in reading your word and in singing these songs and hymns. We thank you for the privilege to be 
redeemed back to you to be the worshiper that you created us to be in the first place. And Father, we continue in that spirit of worship as we turn now to your word, not just to understand. We, we walk through here, Lord, we walk through passages of scripture verse by verse, not just so that we understand them, but that, Lord, we might soak in every aspect of what you have for us here so that we might be changed, so that we might be changed for your glory. We, we want to be a doxology. Our, we want our lives to be that. And so we come before you this morning. We ask that you do that in our gathered time here in the next few moments. We ask that you would use your word to strengthen our faith in your son Jesus Christ so that our lives might be conformed to his image to the end that our lives would be that doxology to you, that we would bring you glory both in and through our lives. We ask that because you deserve that. And so we pray that you would do that this morning. So we ask that in faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul begins verse 25 by saying, Now to him. Now to God. And so we note from the outset that there are two audiences in this letter that Paul writes to the Romans. At the very beginning of the letter, in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says to, he says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. In other words, to the church in Rome. And then he goes on in a 16-chapter letter to write to that church in Rome, to write to those who, lo- who are loved by God and are called to be saints. A letter that we've spent the better part of three years dissecting and seeking to understand. But now, in the closing three verses, now he says, now to him. Now to God. And so this section isn't written exclusively or maybe even primarily to the Roman audience or to us by way of consequence as readers of this letter, but instead, like many of the Psalms and other places, it is written to God. It is written as a means of praising God. So that's what this closing is, is a, is a praise to God, which is why many of our English translations subtitle this paragraph as a doxology, a praise to God. But before Paul gets to the praise, before he gives the praise, he describes the one to whom he is giving the praise, to whom he is addressing the praise. The praise doesn't come to the end. The end of verse 27, the last part of this passage. After he gives several consecutive statements describing the who and the why of the praise, after he does that, then and only then does he say, to this God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Before he gives that praise, there are about a dozen or so statements, consecutive, one after the other, each modifying the other, describing and characterizing God and the gospel. This whole passage here, verses 25 through 27, is just one sentence 
that just filled with run-on sentences in the English grammar. So in the Greek, as well as in most of our English translations, it's, it's one long sentence. And it's like a dozen, 13 different statements, phrases, and most of them are participial phrases that modify the phrase that comes before it. A lot of times to help me as I'm studying the passage that we're going to, to tackle each week, in order to help me understand it better, I diagram the verses. I, I do sentence diagramming, and I did that with this passage. And I want to share that with you. I want to put it on the screen here. Now, if you're an English major, please don't grade me. Please don't judge me. I'm not a great sentence diagrammer, uh, and I know this is done inadequately. And in parts, I've shortened it to try to fit, fit it on one screen. But I want you to see this, how each phrase is modifying the one before it so that we can follow Paul's train of thought throughout this passage. And so this is how we should read and understand verses 25 through 27. 13 statements here. The first statement is the one we just read. Now to him. Well, which him is he referring to? To him, second statement, who is able to strengthen you. So that's the second statement. Modifies the, the him in the first statement. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. And what is the means of that strengthening? How does that strengthening happen that God does for us? That's the third and fourth statement. He says, first, according to my gospel, and then, and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So both of those statements modify the strengthening that God does. This is how God strengthens us. The next phrase in verse 25 modifies both of those statements, modifies the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And I've combined them and shortened them into one-word statements here to fit on the screen. So first of all, at the end of verse 25, he says, this is the, the gospel that was according to the revelation of the mystery. It was according to the revelation of the mystery. So uh, this gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, how do we get those messages? They're according to the revelation of the mystery. So this is where he talks about the mystery of the gospel. And then he includes three past tense verbs to further describe this mystery of the gospel. And again, I've shortened them to three words on the screen here. The end of verse 25, he says, that was kept secret for long ages. So first of all, it was concealed. It was kept secret for long ages, ages, this mystery of the gospel. Secondly, after it was concealed, it was then revealed. He says at the beginning of verse 26, but this mystery has now been disclosed. And then later in verse 26, it, he says that it has been made known to all nations. And so it's been proclaimed. So it was concealed then revealed, and then proclaimed. And so then the concealment and the revelation and the proclamation of this mystery of the gospel is further explained in three ways. He says, first, how was the mystery revealed and proclaimed? It is revealed and proclaimed through the prophetic writings, he says, and according to the command of the eternal God. So through the scriptures is how this mystery of the gospel is revealed and proclaimed. First through the Old Testament writings and then through the New, New Testament writings. Second, 
to whom was this mystery revealed and proclaimed? And he tells us, to all nations. That's the audience of the revelation of this mystery of the gospel. And then thirdly, why was it revealed and proclaimed? To what end was it revealed and proclaimed? And he tells us, to bring about the obedience of faith. And then he closes with verse 27, which includes two additional statements. One, to the only wise God. And then finally, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is a very, it's almost a liturgical statement that he closes this with. This is all about worshiping God, but in the worship of God, in the doxology of God, he explains to us why by defining and describing both God and the mystery of the gospel. And so I want to draw four observations from this doxology that each will build on the other. And so First, from the very beginning of this uh, passage, the first observation that I want to lay before us is that we need to be strengthened. We need to be strengthened. He says in verse 25, he starts this all out with, he says, now to him who is able to strengthen you, to him who is able to strengthen you, what kind of strength do you think Paul has in mind here? You know, our, our culture places a high value on strength. Our culture, our society today put, places a, a high value on being a strong person. But I'm pretty sure that the kind of strength that our culture values is not the kind of strength that Paul is referring to here in verse 25. What kind of strength does our culture value? Well, obviously, for one, it values physical strength, being strong physically or, or, or athletically, uh, being the strongest person or the most in-shape person. Our, our culture values physical strength. It also values intellectual strength, mental strength, being the smartest person in the room, being the most educated, having the most letters behind your name. Our culture values that. Our culture also values having a strong personality. You've often maybe heard that said of someone. Boy, they have a strong personality, which is often just a veiled way of saying that they're very annoying and sometimes they're a jerk. Our culture also values being strong in yourself. And by that, our culture means having a strong, a, very, a, very, a lot of self-confidence and Self-assertiveness, our culture values that. Someone who's a real go-getter, our culture values financial strength as well. Being wealthy, that's, a, that's seen as a strength. But none of these are what Paul is referring to in chapter 16, verse 25. And it's a good thing, right? Because at the end of the day, none of those things really matter, do they? The older I get, the more I realize that physical strength wanes, as does clearly mental strength. I am losing that as well. In the end, those who have that strong personality oftentimes just end up annoying the people around them and alienating themselves from the people around them, as do those who are strong in themselves. And of course, financial strength is only temporary and very fleeting. But there's another kind of strength that Paul wants his readers to develop. 
wants his readers to, to build a different kind of strength. And it's the kind of strength that has been his goal since the very beginning of this letter. In chapter 1, verse 11, as he's beginning this treatise on who God is and what the gospel is and its implication to our life, Paul says this in verse 11 of chapter 1. He says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, which is the same word that we see in chapter 16, verse 25. So that was Paul's goal from the very outset, that his readers would be strengthened, that the believers in Rome would be strengthened somehow. But then he goes on in verse 12 to define more clearly what kind of strength they needed, the kind of strengthening that he wanted them to have. He goes on in verse 12 to say, that is, after saying, I want you to be strengthened, he says, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So the strengthening that was his goal was a strengthening of their faith. He wanted them to have a stronger faith, a a faith in God that was more secure and, and more robust and stronger. Which to me is interesting because in verse 8 of chapter 1, Paul commends them for their great faith. He he says this in verse 8 of chapter 1, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. In other words, wherever I go, they talk about the faith of the Roman believers. They were famous for their faith. Now, church, if they were famous for their great faith and they needed to be strengthened in their faith, how much more do we need to be strengthened in our faith? When we worry about something in our life, something that's going to happen, something that might happen, when we're anxious about something in life, it is because of a lack of faith and trusting God. When we give in to frustration and anger, it's owing in large part to a weakness of faith. When we give in to temptation and we throw in the towel in our battle against sin, that oftentimes means that our our faith is not as strong as it should be. It's a faith problem, ultimately. When we don't share our faith, perhaps it's because we're, we're not as convinced of the veracity of that which we say we believe. It's a faith problem when we don't share our faith. When we question our own, our own salvation, when we have doubts about our assurance of salvation, it's a faith problem. When we don't follow through with family devotions, it's partly because our faith is weak. Have, have I hit Everyone yet? I mean, we could go on, right? Any area of our life that's not being conformed to God's will is an issue of faith. It's a a faith problem. There's something about God that we're not trusting, or at least we're not living like we're fully trusting him in that area. It doesn't mean that we don't have faith. It means that our faith is weak. Our faith is small. It needs to be strengthened, just like the Roman believers. This is the kind of strengthening that Paul was referring to 
here in chapter 16 when he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you. And before we go on to the next observation, I want us to just hit pause here for a second and make sure that we're all on the same page, that we all could admit that together. Can we all just admit that we need to be strengthened in our faith? Not, not that we don't have faith, but, but that to a certain degree, our, our faith is weak. It, it needs to be strengthened, that we're in the same boat with the Roman believers here. I'm reminded of the story. I often go back to this when I think about my need for a stronger faith. In the ninth chapter of Mark's gospel, there's a story of a father who brings his demon-possessed boy to Jesus to drive out the demon, to heal his son. He had earlier brought his son to the disciples, and they couldn't heal him. And so so he brings him to Jesus, and, and, and he says, if you can, help us, have compassion on us, and, and help us heal my son. And it's interesting to note Jesus' response in verse 23 of Mark 9. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And we remember that the word believe is simply the Greek verb form of the noun faith. Jesus is saying all things are possible for him who, who has faith. How does the Father respond to that? Jesus pronounces the need for faith. And what does the Father respond with? Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. In other words, I have faith. I trust you, Jesus. But help me in my lack of faith. Help me with my weak faith. Help me in the midst of my anemic faith. Make my faith in you stronger and more robust and more real, Jesus. That's what he needed. He he had faith. He just needed a stronger faith. And church, this could be our prayer, perhaps should be our prayer as well. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I have faith, but help my weakness of faith. That should be our prayer in, in the various situations that we face in life, when, when we're given a diagnosis of cancer, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. When your company downsizes and your job is eliminated, that needs to be our prayer. I, 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 I trust you, Lord, but help me in my lack of trust of you. When our child is suffering, when the battle against sin seems insurmountable and impossible, we have faith in God, but it's weak. And so we could say along with this, Father, I believe, help my unbelief. We, we need our faith to be strengthened. So we're together, right? We're in the same boat with the Roman believers. So we'll move on to the second observation, and that is the good news, that God strengthens our faith through the gospel. Now, embedded in that observation is two subpoints. Number one, God strengthens our faith. Number two, the means that he uses to strengthen our faith is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And both of those are as important as they are encouraging, church. Think about the first one. God 
is able to strengthen our faith. So we're in the same boat. We need our faith to be strengthened. The good news is that God is able to strengthen our faith. Paul Paul says, now to him who is able to strengthen you. That word for able in verse 25 is the Greek word literally for power. It's the word dunamis, which is why the King James translates this phrase, to him that is of power to establish you in faith. In other words, God is strong enough and he's powerful enough to do this. And not only is he able to do it, he has promised to do it. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What a great promise that is. He who brought you to faith in Jesus Christ, he who put that saving faith in you, he is able to bring it to completion. That thing that he's doing in you through the faith that he put in you, he will complete that work. He will do it. He has promised to do it. He is able to do it, and he will to do it. So church, be encouraged with that this morning, that we need our faith strengthened, and God is able to strengthen our faith, and he will do it. But the second part of this observation is critical. Not only is God able to strengthen our faith, but the means that he uses to strengthen our faith is the gospel. This is a major part of this doxology. Paul says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So both of those phrases, according to my gospel and according to the preaching of Jesus Christ, those two phrases there, and both of them modify the verb strengthen. So these are the means through which God strengthens our faith. God's able to strengthen us. How does he do it? Through the preaching of the gospel. Through the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Two phrases, but they both describe a singular means of strengthening us, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Paul says the preaching of Jesus Christ, he's simply defining which gospel he's talking about, which good news it is. It is the good news, the gospel about Jesus Christ. And when he says my gospel, he's not talking about a different gospel that's just Paul's. He's talking about the gospel that he has laid out for us in this letter. This gospel that he has spent this letter undergoing. He has labored so hard to communicate this gospel in this letter. In fact, we've said a number of times that the first eight chapters of this letter is in fact his gospel presentation. The first eight chapters of Romans is his gospel tract. And what Paul is saying here is that the means that God employs to strengthen our faith is the gospel that he's been explaining to us in this letter. And we ought to note that this gospel tract in chapters 1 through 8 is primarily for the church. It wasn't primarily written for those who are lost. He says to to those who are believers in Rome. He he writes this treatise, this detailed teaching on the gospel to the church. To those who are already in. Why? Because it is the gospel that strengthens the faith of believers. So how does this happen? 
How, how does this work? How does the gospel strengthen our faith? I'll mention just a number of ways, but I'll mention six ways that we see in this letter alone. First of all, and most fundamentally, and initially, the gospel produces faith. It is the preaching of the gospel that calls forth saving faith according to God's sovereign design and sovereign will. That he uses the proclamation of the gospel to call forth saving faith in those whom he is saving. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the proclamation of this gospel, which Paul says is the power of God unto salvation. It is the proclamation of that gospel which God employs and uses to bring about and call forth saving faith in Christ. So that's the first way. The second way that the gospel strengthens faith is that it reminds us of our sin. It reminds us of our depravity and our need of rescue, our need for a Savior. Twice in both chapter 1 and in chapter 2, Paul says, because of our sin, we are without excuse. Because of our rebellion against God, we are laid bare before him. We are are without excuse. And then he says in in chapter 3, to follow that up, he says, so that every mouth may be stopped. Why is every mouth stopped? Presumably because they no longer have an excuse before God. So that every mouth may be stopped, he says, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This is what the gospel reveals to us. It reveals to us our need for rescue, our utter hopelessness apart from Christ. Paul drove this home in chapter 3. We cannot forget verses 10 through 18 where he drives this point home and he says, none is righteous, no not one, find yourself in this, none is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. This is you and I, church. The the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. And then the crusher in verse 20 of chapter 3. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Christian, we don't walk away from this letter, or really from the Bible itself, with a positive view of ourselves. If we we are understanding Scripture for what it literally says, we don't walk away from this with a high view of self or a positive view of humanity. In fact, we walk away from this letter with a very sober view of self and a very sober view of humanity. None is righteous, no, not one. And as a result, no human being will be justified in his sight. And this this sobering view of self, this ongoing awareness of our sinfulness and the vileness of our depravity 
and our desperate need for a Savior. This church is the fertile ground in which the gospel takes root and bears the fruit of faith in Jesus as our Redeemer and our Rescuer and our Savior. So if our view of self is less than that, if our view of self is, you know, I'm not that bad, well, then we're not going to see our need, our utter hopeless need for rescue. And furthermore, once we are saved, if we, if we lose the perspective of our depravity, if we lose the awareness of the reality of indwelling sin still with us, then we will not see our ongoing daily need for Jesus to continue to save us and conform us to the image of Christ day after day. In other words, our faith in Jesus for the daily walk of the Christian life, our faith in him for that, it is not served well by an anemic view of sin, but a robust view of sin and a sobering view of self and humanity and the vileness of our depraved nature keeps us trusting Jesus day by day and moment by moment. And through this, our faith in Jesus is grown and strengthened. Third way that our faith is strengthened through the gospel is that the gospel reminds us that we are justified, and remember that word means declared righteous, that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. The great hallmark doctrine of the Reformation that Paul drives home so clearly in this letter. After he drives home the reality of our need for a Savior and the reality of our utter sinfulness and hopelessness in that situation in the first two and a half chapters, then he gives us the good news in the middle of the third chapter, verses 21 through 22 of chapter 3, where he says, but now, but now, after saying we've got no righteousness because of our sin, none of us is righteous, no, not one, then he says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets point to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then he goes on in in the remainder of chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5 to develop this thought that although we have no righteousness of our own, and, and, we're, and we're hopeless because we have no righteousness of our own. We can't be justified before a holy God. Nevertheless, a righteousness has been made available to us. A righteousness that is not ours, but can become ours through faith in Jesus Christ. It is not made possible to us through following the law. He says the law can't produce it, and so it needs to be produced another way, namely through faith in Jesus Christ, as he says, whereby that righteousness is credited to our account and we are declared righteous and justified before God because this alien righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, is now ours by faith. Glorious truth that Paul lays out in chapters 3, 4, and 5 and then continues to give us the implications of that in the ensuing chapters. But the question is, how does that truth, that truth of the gospel, that aspect of the gospel, how does that strengthen our faith? Well, it reminds us that 
our right standing before a holy God, my, my right standing before a holy God today, like right now, this morning, is not because of my works. It's not because of my performance for God, but it is based on Jesus' finished work and his performance for me. And church, that builds my faith day by day in this one who has done the work for me. It builds my faith in Jesus more and more. Fourth, fourth way the gospel strengthens our faith is that it reminds us that we have been saved, we are being saved, and that we will be saved. That there is a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense of our salvation. And, and Paul addressed this in the opening verses of chapter 5. He says in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, in other words, by faith in Christ, we've been given his righteousness, and that, so now we've been declared righteous. We've been justified by that faith. It's happened. Now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Currently, in the present, I'm standing because of this same grace through faith. And furthermore, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, which is the hope of future glory. So the faith that saves is called forth by the gospel according to God's sovereign will, but so is the faith that sanctifies. They're they're one and the same. The faith that saves is, is the faith that sanctifies, and they're both an act of God's grace. It's not that we come to faith in Jesus Christ by grace alone, and then, you know, it's up to us to live the Christian life. No, as we've already said, he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so in that truth of the gospel, we're, we're encouraged to grow in our faith in Jesus and his ongoing work of conforming us to his image. We trust in Christ alone to save us by grace through faith in his finished work on the cross so that we are justified. And as he's conforming us to his likeness, as he's sanctifying us, as he's making us look more like Jesus, which by the way is hard, Being conformed from a sinner into a saint is not easy. Being conformed into the likeness of Christ when you start out as a rebel of Christ is hard. I don't know how many of you, uh, God is conforming to the image of Jesus. It's not an easy road. It violates your will. It violates your desires. It comes against what you want out of life, and it conforms you to his image. It's hard. But as he is conforming us, as he's shaping us to look more like him, what do we do? We keep trusting him like we did at first. So we trust him, and we put our faith in him to save us, but we keep trusting him today and tomorrow and every day to keep conforming us to the image of Christ as he changes us and ultimately completes us in Christ. Fifth, fifth way the gospel grows our faith. It grows our faith through suffering. We left off with verse 2 of chapter 5, but Paul continues in verse 3, and he talks about how the gospel grows our faith in the midst of suffering. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So the gospel reminds us that times of suffering, God uses those times to sharpen our faith. 
to grow our faith, to strengthen our faith. And so the gospel strengthens our faith both in and through times of suffering. If you haven't experienced it, you haven't experienced suffering in Christ. And those that have, just ask them. Ask them how their faith has been strengthened. I'm always floored to talk with people who have experienced the deepest sufferings. And they can say on the other end with all seriousness, I am glad for that, for what God has done in my life through that. And how he has strengthened my faith in him through that. And, and, and us on this side of suffering, we say, no, you're just saying that. You're just playing the Christian thing. But there is a reality to that that is unmistakable. God uses suffering to grow and strengthen and purify our faith in Christ. Just ask those around you who have experienced that. This is part of what God does. When all seems hopeless, we have hope in Christ. So... Sixth, the gospel reminds us of victory over sin. The gospel reminds us of victory over sin. We remember from chapter 7, Paul's inner conflict when he seems like he's talking to himself. He's like, I don't, what's going on? I'm doing the things I know I shouldn't do and I don't do the things I know I should do. And he's talking about this battle with indwelling sin. He's a believer. But he's battling with sin. And he laments. He cries out. And he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body? Who's going who's to rescue me out of this? In the very next verse, he doesn't skip a beat. He, do, he doesn't take a breath. In the very next verse, he says, ber, next verse, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who, who, get, who rescues me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Jesus Christ has done it in his victory over sin and death at the cross. Jesus has waged this battle for us, and in him, through faith in him, this victory over sin is ours, belongs to us. The way to fight against sin is in our life, lives is to, is to remember that, the, that sin, the sin in our lives, no longer holds us captive. We were once a prisoner to it, but no longer now we've been set free. As he says in the very next verse, in the opening two verses of chapter 8, which, remember, there's no chapter divisions in, in, the, in, in the Scripture, in the original languages. He just goes on to the very next verse. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We have been set free in Christ. He has achieved, he has accomplished victory over sin. That sin that you are battling against, that indwelling sin that you're fighting against in your life, friend, it has no hold over you if you are in Christ. It doesn't hold you in bondage. It once did, but you've been set free in Christ. He has achieved and, and accomplished victory over that sin. The gospel strengthens our faith in this Jesus who not only saved us from sin's penalty, but is, is saving us today and tomorrow and the next day from sin's power in our life as we walk with him day after day and battle against sin. So the point of all of these six ways is that the means that God employs to strengthen our faith in Christ as a daily walk with him, the way that he does that, the means that he uses, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so our application of this 
should be that we ought to remain gospel-saturated people. That, that's, that's who we are to be. We are to, to be a gospel-saturated people. We are to preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another, to remind one another of these truths so that we will never forget because we all know that there are times in the, in the, in the heat of battle, in the midst of that crisis of faith, that we Man, we don't recall these things. We're, we're not thinking on these things. We're not believing on We're not trusting in Jesus in these ways. So we need to be reminded. We need to rehearse the gospel and go back through it in those times. What, what did Jesus do? What did he accomplish? What, what does that mean for me in this situation? In light of the gospel, what should I believe about myself in this, in this situation? What should I believe about others? What should I believe about this situation itself? And so on. Rehearse the gospel. That's part of what we're to be doing as an application. And then the reason for this. What, rehearsing the gospel builds our faith in Christ, but to what end? Right, what's the... What's the goal of that? What's the purpose of strengthening our faith through the gospel? And the answer to that question brings us to the third observation here. So first, we understand that we need our faith strengthened. Secondly, the good news is that God strengthens our faith through the gospel. As we listen to it, apply it, rehearse it, and preach it to ourselves and to one another. But thirdly, gospel-strengthened faith produces God-glorifying obedience. Let me say that again. Gospel-strengthened faith produces, results in God-glorifying obedience. So after he talks here about the gospel as the means of strengthening our faith, then Paul says, still in verse 25, he says, this is according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, we don't have time to dive into the depths of what Paul means when he refers to the mystery of the gospel and how it was concealed for a time. And it was hidden, it was concealed, because it was concealed within the secret plan of God in eternity past, that this was his plan to, reveal, to redeem sinners back to himself. And how it was then revealed, it was revealed in the scriptures, first in the Old Testament scriptures, through the prophetic writings, as he says, as the, the, the prophets spoke from God about this prophecy of the coming Messiah, one who would come and accomplish all of this. And then finally, how this mystery has now been proclaimed to all nations, first through the New Testament, uh, the teachings of the apostles, and now through the church itself. But what I want to draw your attention to is the last part there of verse 26, where he says, to bring about the obedience of faith. Now that's a purpose statement. That's a statement that is answering a why question. And the why question is, 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 why does God strengthen our faith through the gospel? Why, why is he concerned with that? Why does he strengthen us in our faith? To what end? The answer, to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, why is our God concerned about our obedience? 
I mean, after all, he knows that our obedience is going to be half-hearted at best, that our obedience is going to be um, incomplete. Why is God concerned with our obedience? It is because our obedience, that obedience that is formed by gospel-strengthened faith in Jesus, that kind of obedience brings glory to God. God is glorified in the faith-filled obedience of his children. And ironically, you go back to chapter 1, this is exactly what he described was his aim at the very beginning of this letter. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says this, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. He's talking about himself and the other apostles and those who are with him, who's writing to the church in Rome. We have received grace and apostleship to bring about, that's a, that's a clue that a purpose statement is coming, to bring about what? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And so now here we see this very same emphasis at the end of this letter in chapter 16, gospel-strengthened faith producing the obedience of that faith for his glory, which is where we end our observation of this doxology. This is the fourth observation of the doxology, and that is that our God deserves all glory for this. He deserves all our praise, all our worship, all our honor for this. He deserves glory for all that we see here. We, we could shorten these three verses by taking the first part of verse 25 and marrying it with the last part of verse 27 and say, now to him who is able to strengthen you, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And, and what we have there in the, in the middle, in between those two statements, explains the how and the why of, of how that happens and how that works. But that's the essence of what he's saying. That's, that's the main thrust of this closing passage. Our God who strengthens us, our God who strengthens our faith through the gospel deserves glory forevermore. I think it's noteworthy that of all the things that Paul could have listed as a reason why God deserves our glory, I mean, the list is endless that he could have included here, right? But at the close of this letter, he chooses to close his letter by pointing to the deserving nature of God, God deserving glory from us because God strengthens our faith. But see, now we see the connection, don't we? Now, now we understand the connection. He strengthens our faith in him through the gospel to the end that it will produce faith-filled obedience in him and that that faith-filled obedience will do what? It will bring glory to him. You know, it's a true blessing that we worship a king who desires to strengthen his subjects. You don't always find that in kings. You don't always find that in dictators. Typically, kings and dictators will want to keep their subjects low. They want to keep their subjects down and weak and poor and in need because then they know who they are and they know who the king is. And there's no mistaking that. A population of strong and educated subjects 
well-educated, strong subjects is a threat to autocratic dictators. But church, our God is not threatened in the least by our strengthening. He wants to strengthen us because he knows that the stronger we are, the more glory he gets. And so he strengthens us. He strengthens us for his namesake, for his glory. And so let us keep rehearsing the gospel so that our faith in Christ is strengthened and becomes more robust and it's ready for the challenges and the sufferings so that we are conformed to the image of Christ and so that the conforming of us to the image of Christ is manifested in a faith-filled obedience to Christ in all areas of our lives. But not just so that we would have an obedience. That is not the ultimate end. The ultimate end is through the manifestation of a life transformed to the likeness of Jesus, manifested by faith-filled obedience to Jesus in all areas of our lives, would bring glory to God. And that he would be glorified in us and through us. So, let us press into the gospel. Let us saturate our lives with the gospel. Let us preach the gospel to ourselves, to one another, in community, in our base groups. Let's rehearse the gospel in every area of our life so that our faith will be strengthened, so that we would have faithful obedience, so that God would be glorified in us and through us because we know he deserves it. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much. I thank you on behalf of my brothers and sisters in this room whom you have saved by grace through faith. We return thanks to you for calling forth faith from us, for giving us the faith as a gift to trust in Jesus as our only hope. And as a result of that, removing from us the penalty of our sin and giving to us the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ. We don't deserve that. We did nothing to earn that. All we did to add to that equation is our sin. And so we humbly thank you for that. But Father, you've called us to continue to walk with you day by day. And that requires great faith. And we just want to admit to you this morning that our faith is weak. Our faith is not strong. It it needs to be stronger. We can look at the different areas of each of our lives that provides to us plenty of evidence for our need for a stronger faith. But we are so glad that you have provided for that provided that for us in the gospel. God, may we be a church that never graduates from the gospel, that never moves on from this glorious truth, but that we would continue to rehearse the gospel and learn and implement the implications of the gospel in our lives each and every day until you bring us home so that you might, through the strengthening of our faith, produce obedience in us that would bring you glory. And God, we pray for those among us, perhaps in this room, perhaps in our home, perhaps in our workplaces, in our community, that don't know you in this way. We pray, Father, that you would give them, by your gracious and sovereign hand, 
that you would give them the faith that you once gave to us. Lead them across that line of faith, the trust in Jesus as their only way. There may be people in this very room this morning, and they might think they're one of yours simply because they're sitting in a seat, simply because they're in a church, or simply because they've done some kind of religious activity but they've never trusted in Christ alone. God, we, we ask that you'd give them right now where they sit, that you'd give them the faith to trust in Christ alone, that they would set aside anything else that they might be trusting in, whether it's their church membership or whether it was their baptism years ago or whatever it might have been that they're placing their faith in that, that's not you, and that you would replace that with, a, with solely a faith in Jesus Christ alone. Rescue them from the penalty of their sin and give to them graciously the righteousness of your son, Jesus, that they may be justified in your sight. And then, Lord, begin that work of strengthening their faith so that you might be glorified through their lives. We ask this as a church in faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.